0: All right, great. We're gonna have a really great conversation. This is gonna be beautiful. This is really gonna be beautiful. Hey, get on code. It's time, it's time. Code Keepers, it's time. We're gonna have a great conversation with Derricka Pranell. I said it right this time. I feel good, I feel good. Let's get ready to get on code. All right, welcome to Get On Code, the Fly Guy Show, which is a series of melanated conversations Focused on empowerment, health, wealth, and knowledge of self. People think in binary choices because they are conditioned to.
1: And on the wall was a picture of a wolf and a lion. I think the wolf was the Democratic Party. The lion was the Republicans.
0: But the drug trade and all these illegal stuff that uh, people do, that's still economics. It's just that they couldn't do it in a traditional system. We're talking about melanated wealth. So we can build wealth, but we just, for some reason... Don't seem to be able to transfer. it. You had a great experience. Fine. That means nothing. What were you told as a child about education? You had to be how many times better? Every impression without an
1: expression becomes depression.
0: Peace code keepers. I'm in my classroom today, not in the studio. So it's going to be a little different, but Hey, This difference is gonna be great. Hey, we have a great author with us. And not only is she a great author, uh, I mean, the book is banging. Thank you. But the focus is the empowerment that we seek. So, you know, Get On Code is all about empowerment, targeted to black empowerment, and our code is empowerment. So what you eat should empower you. What you read should empower you. What you do should empower you. Use your political position to empower your community. And today we're gonna talk with the great Derek Parnell, the author of *Becoming Abolitionists*. Check this out: police, protests, and the pursuit of freedom. Not just the three P's. You know, we all know about the twelve P's: piss poor preparation promotes piss poor performance, and piss poor performance promotes pain. But this is the three P's: police, protests, and the pursuit of freedom. Whoo! So when I hear the word abolitionist, I normally don't think about modern day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, what is a police abolitionist and how did you become one?
1: Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you. I believe in empowerment so, so much. And part of the reason why we actually need abolition is because that is ultimately what's going to empower our communities. And so what what, what abolition is, right? We understand the historical sense, like you said, you know, to abolish slavery, we think about it as an eradication of an institution, the end of slavery, right? But slavery just didn't end. There were lots of other things that had to be put in place to make sure that Black people couldn't get re right? That Black people could get jobs. There was a brief reconstruction era that made sure that Black people could work and build houses and move freely from the South to the North. And so when we talk about the modern abolitionist movement to abolish police and prisons, what we're essentially talking about is two things. One, It's a commitment to eradicate police, prisons, prosecutors, the surveillance state that caused so much harm to our communities. And it's also a commitment to eradicate the actual harm in society that leads people to think that they need to rely on these harmful institutions in order to solve social problems. So we want to abolish the police, right? Abolish prisons, abolish all of these violent institutions and abolish the actual violence that's in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our churches, in our workplaces. And so we don't have to solve them, you know, by relying on police and prisons, because police and prisons were not intended to to address those issues in the first place.
0: Wow. Okay. And like I said, when I think of abolition, and abolitionist abolitionists, I think of, you know, the uh, the enslavement of African people and uh, indigenous people. Uh, so it's it's intriguing to apply that in a modern sense. And what we're looking at is a copy of her book, "Becoming Abolitionists: Police, Protests, and the Pursuit of Freedom." Uh, we talked about the enslavement of indigenous Africans and African people here on the continent of the United, well, in the United States of America. Um, is there a connection to the enslavement? of our people? Jim Crow's segregation, violent disruption of peaceful civil rights marches. You know, what's the connection? What's oh, the connection right. with police?
1: Yes, of course. So if you list, think about any of those eras that you described, Jim Crow, the violent disruption of the civil rights marches, Nixon's war on drugs, the crime bill, any black person should ask themselves, what side were the police on? Right, were they on the side of the integrationists or were they on the side of the segregationists? Were they on the side of the peaceful civil rights marchers, or were they on the side of the people who were trying to break them up? Were they on the side of Nixon and caused so many of our homes to be raided? Were they uh, responsible for breaking up families? Were they responsible for helping to build the mass imprisonment that we see today? You know, with Biden, were they on the side of the, the raids or were they protecting the people? And in each generation, each decade since police first existed in this country, they have always been on the side of maintaining capitalism and white supremacy. And so I, it, it, it honestly breaks my heart that people, especially our people, think that we can just reform this institution that was created to help enslave them, right? The, the number one reason why we have police in this country is because black people resisted enslavement because they were uprising on ships, because they were running away as soon as they got here. It's because they were planning uprisings and rebellions. And so, so many of the same tools that we see as a part of policing, such as building informants, we see that early on slave ships. You had to create informants because black people, African people were committed to figuring out and devising secret plans in order to rebel against the ship. So how do you figure out whether someone is building a secret plan? Well, you create a system of informants. How do you determine whether people are hiding weapons in response to an uprising? You create a system of raids. How do you create, or how rather do you stop people from running away from the plantation? You create a system of policing and patrol and surveillance to monitor them. So a lot of the modern tools of policing were refined through each of these eras, where black people were repressed and subjugated. So now we expect that, oh, maybe we can put more black cops in there and maybe that will help alleviate some of the violence, but no, they can't actually even stop the harm in our communities. And so why would we continue to try to reform an institution that was never built to protect us in the first place?
0: Wow, that kind of reminds me of how Ice Cube said uh, black police showing off for the white cop. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. If you've been stopped by a black cop and a white cop, then you know.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting, interesting. So your position is it can't be fixed. We just got to get rid of it. Okay. So if that's the case, you know, what will our communities look like if we take our resources and we move them to something that serves us?
1: Yeah, I love this question so much because when people think or at least hear police abolition, there's this assumption that abolition means absence, right? That abolitionists want to snap our fingers and then overnight, You know, nearly 1 million cops are going to disappear or 18,000 law enforcement agencies are going to go up and poof or 2300 jails and prisons are just going to close overnight. That's not realistic. That's not what abolitionists are demanding. What abolitionists are demanding is that we ask better questions to figure out, one, why harm occurs in our society. So, for example, right now, if you look at the murder rate where I'm from in St. Louis, it's one of the highest on in the country. And what usually happens is that whenever there's a spike in the murder rate, the number one thing that happens is that we need to give more money to police. We give more money to police. But police already have, at least in St. Louis, one of the highest per capita of people on the streets. So you have more police and the murders aren't necessarily decreasing. They're still increasing. But we figure out, well, why do people actually kill people, right? What's causing the violence to happen instead of just constantly putting people in cages? You put someone in jail, they're going to be more precarious when they come out than when they were um to begin with. So how about we actually invest in economic opportunities in our community? How about we actually invest in education? How about we actually invest in healthcare? How about we actually make sure that people have access to fresh and healthy foods in our neighborhoods? What are some of the things that eliminate and prevent harm? How do we build communities? How do we build families to make sure that when there is harm, there's actual accountability? And now what the case is, we invest money in police, They sometimes put the wrong person in jail and try to pin multiple murders, especially if you're a black man, multiple murders on you. The clearance rate, which is what police, um, is the amount of arrests that police make and where someone is charged, not even convicted, just charged. It's like 30, 40 percent in some of like the poorest black neighborhoods in the country, which means that 70 percent of the people who actually commit the murder don't even get arrested, don't even go to jail, don't even go to prison. It's, It's an ineffective system. So if we actually want to get to the root causes of harm, we have to see, well, What's different about our communities? And why is there this level of violence? Which is not because we're Black. It's because we have the most amount of divestment in those neighborhoods. And we have to figure out how to make sure that there's a lot of investment because that's what's ultimately going to keep us safe.
0: You asked a couple of questions that I thought were how questions. You asked a lot of how How do we do this? How do we do that? How do we, So do you have the answer to that?
1: Some some of them, what I'm excited about is that abolition doesn't require me to be a singular expert on how to figure out how to abolish the police and to build the society that we want. It's a collective demand on all of us to fight for that society. So then it ranges, right? So if we want to try to stop violence in our communities today, One thing that we can do is make sure that we're investing in really good street violence interrupted programs. And one reason why cops don't like street violence interrupted programs and try to get in the way of them doing the work because it threatens the job security of police. If we figure out other ways to solve problems and to stop murders, then maybe we'll stop investing so much money in police. So we see police who are antagonistic, who have problems with other um, opportunities to eliminate harm in our neighborhoods. And you would think, if you're a cop, wouldn't you be happy that murders are going down? We don't have to rely on someone who has a gun in order to do that. So one thing that we can do is invest in street violence, interrupting programs. Another thing that we can do, we want to stop other kind of harm in our society is invest in all of those things you just listed in. Right. Education, housing. Right now we're in a massive housing crisis. When there's housing crisis, and economic crises, we see an increase of murder and we see an increase of violence because people are in precarious situations, you know, they live in from couch to couch, from block to block, there's little stability, they're stressed out, you know, they don't know when the next time there's gonna be money in their pocket or the next meal they're gonna have. So how about we actually decrease the reasons why people experience stress and frustration and pain and harm, because here's the thing, we can take sexual violence, for example, If you're in a situation where you are living in an abusive um, relationship, but that's the only place where you can sleep at night because there's no other way for you to get housing, then it's like having a cop, you know, be funded is not gonna stop you from being vulnerable to that violence, but making sure that you have housing, making sure you have somewhere to go for you and your children if you're in a vulnerable situation, that is what promotes community safety. That's what keeps people safe from harm, not just giving that money to cop. So if you look at a lot of cities, half the budget for the city goes to the police. And then you look at the housing budget or the education budget, it's tiny, it's tiny. So how do we make sure we're fighting for all of those investments in our community that remove people from dangerous situations and start taking money away from the police to help facilitate that?
0: And I think the counter argument that you probably have an answer to (laughs) is what we need to invest in keeping our streets safe and police stop crime, police keep our streets safe.
1: Oh, well, that's absolutely just not true. There are several studies that show that there is no correlation between the number the number of police in the city and the crime rate. We can look at many cities. We can look at Chicago, Detroit, St. Louis where I'm from DC. They have among Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico has among the highest number of cops and the highest crime rate. So if police were so effective at keeping crime down, Wouldn't the cities with the most police have the lowest crime rates, right? That's not true. We actually see fewer police in places that have investment in education, that has robust housing, childcare, healthcare, grocery stores. Mm -hmm. We see fewer police in those neighborhoods. And so it's just simply not, it's just not a good argument because then they would have to explain how there are so many cops in Chicago. Yeah, mamas are losing their babies almost every night to gun violence. Well, shouldn't all these be cops be stopping it is as if cops are standing outside people's homes stopping bullets from entering the windows right that's not what police do they cycle people in and out of jail and if anything cops are contributing to the violence police killings are increasing while we're in a pandemic and so we have to figure out how to stop violence in our communities and that just doesn't come with relying on cops
0: intriguing intriguing you brought up the environment a couple of times I know in in your book, one of the things it deals with is environment and environmental racism. So, okay. So how's that environmental racism exist and Mm -hmm. how does it impact police violence?
1: Well, environmental racism and climate change absolutely have a direct impact on police violence. So if we look at Flint or we look at any, you know, black community, especially as class exploited that's poor, we can bet that they probably live in the neighborhood where there's lead paint, or they're probably drinking water that has lead in it, or they're near a toxic waste site. Or if we think about climate change, right, something like Hurricane Katrina that many of us remember. Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans. And what happened when black people were trying to figure out how to survive, how to get away from the devastation? The very first message from the police is that we will arrest you. We will stop you. Police didn't stop, you know, white people who were armed with guns from shooting Hurricane Katrina victims. The very first institution that was built in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, according to critical resistance, was a jail. Right, While people were losing their homes, they decided let's put people in a jail that's vulnerable to flooding, that's vulnerable to vermin, rats and roaches, you know, squirmishing all around. And so the more that we're going to experience of environmental racism, we're going to see what happened historically, which is police is going to be on the side of the people who are making sure that Black people are vulnerable to environmental racism. So when Black people organize and protest and say, you know, we don't wanna drink lead filled water, or we don't want to live in houses that have lead paint in the walls, or we don't live, want to live next to a toxic waste site. Police are going to be the first responders to break up those protests and target those activists, right? When those um, when we see displacement and Black people being moved out of the neighborhoods because of climate gentrification, because now white people are going to start buying more homes and properties that the inland, because the coastline of the United States is going to start shrinking. We're going to see massive Black people displaced. Police are going to be there to keep them out of suburbs. Police are going to be there to round them up and put them in jails, So climate change and environmental racism are indispensable because cops like they're just going to be the primary thing that's invested in instead of slowing down climate change and fighting the toxins in our community.
0: One of the things that I love that you talked about earlier was fighting the toxins in our community. You know, how do we address poverty? How do we address Mm -hmm. violence on women? How do we address domestic violence in general? You know, how do we address substance abuse issues? You know, and and so if we are abolitionists, police abolitionists, will any of those things improve with the movement of resources?
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes. What's actually so sad is that people, especially lawmakers, they'll say, look, we need the Violence Against Women Act because it's gonna protect women who are in abusive situations, it's, it's gonna protect them from men. We're gonna bring down all of these harsh penalties and lock up men if they you know hit a woman or harass a woman. But when you look at the institution of policing, the rate of domestic violence in policing, it's two to four times higher than the general public. So many police officers perpetuate domestic violence. And this is the profession that we're relying on to rescue people from interpersonal harm, right? So we want to actually fight and eliminate and prevent domestic violence. We Shouldn't we also be fighting to eliminate the institution that also perpetuates it? And so it's, we have to figure out, well, what put, what puts people in domestic violence situations? One thing is precarity, right? People who don't have housing, people who don't have health benefits if they leave their marriage, people who you know don't have educational opportunities if they want to go back to school. So they're forced to work in a job that's exploitative or they're forced to work in a job where their boss you know makes sexual advances and harassment towards them. Or they're forced to stay in a marriage where if I leave, you know, I write about one story in the book. I talk about Inez, you know, this black woman, this nurse in St. Louis. And Inez, she was a she couldn't leave or was afraid to leave an abusive marriage because she said, I'm not gonna be able to afford to live on my own. I'm not gonna be able to afford childcare. And so what Inez didn't need was a cop to just only arrest her husband. Actually, when the prosecutor tried to bring charges against him after one violent incident, Inez was like, no, 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 no. Because if he goes to jail, that doesn't get to the heart of the problem. What Inez actually needed was childcare. She needed a way to be able to put her kids in a, in a safe environment while she went to go be a nurse and help people. And so it was, that investment is so important. And we're not going to get the safety that we want if we just continue to fund the
0: police. Wow. Well, I want people to know your credentials. <laughs> <laughs> so kick the resume, kick the resume.
1: The credential where, I mean, where do I start? You know, I went to University of Missouri, Kansas City. I After that, I studied at Berkeley for a little while so I could understand statistics, which is really, really important for me to have an analysis around public policy. Then I went to Harvard Law School. And after Harvard, I worked on policing issues in St. Louis and in Ferguson. And that's largely related to the work that I do right now.
0: Excellent, excellent, excellent. Working with policing issues, What were you able to accomplish?
1: Well, one huge issue that we were able to accomplish in Ferguson with a group of community activists was removing and eliminating outstanding warrants for more than a thousand people who were living in Ferguson. So the Ferguson Police Department would make all of these frivolous arrests and then, you know, just make people live and, you know, they were afraid to get rearrested because they would go to jail but many of these cases were like five years old, 10 years old. So we built a campaign against the DOJ and against the Ferguson Police um, Department to remove a lot of those old cases so people could get their driver's license back. They could drive and walk through their community without the fear of going to jail and then having to you know, sit there for something that took place 10 years ago that wasn't even that serious. Excuse me, through the Ferguson consent decree, we were also able to start modifying some of the use of force policies that the Ferguson Police Department used to interact with different civilians in the neighborhood. And most importantly, you know, that work is still continuing today. There's people, organizers and activists in Ferguson who are still trying to figure out how to reduce the capacity of the Ferguson Police Department to be violent. So that time was just so important to me and it continues to inform the work that I do today.
0: Wow. Wow. And, and and now you're an author. Because...
1: I, am, I am an author, yes.
0: <laughs> did, did that have to sink in? You're, you're a published author, possibly best selling so far, right?
1: Oh, I man, we'll see. I mean, yes, I think yesterday, the day before yesterday, I walked past a bookstore and I saw my book in the window. And it was one of the few times where I was just like, you know, this moment is so much more and bigger than me and why this book is so important to me, why I believe in it so much, Because it doesn't only tell like my story or what abolition is, but it really shows a history of policing in this country. It shows a history of resistance in this country. It talks about how all these other people, especially black people, were trying to reform the police and why they also became an abolitionist. It gives statistics and examples and, you know, some thoughts about our deepest fears. What about the murderers? What about the rapists? What are we gonna, what's gonna happen? And so I really believe in the message and the work that the book is doing in the world. And I'm just so grateful that people are, are taking it and reading it and sharing it with other people in their community.
0: Ashe. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the uh, inevitably, the question is going to be asked, what about Black on Black Crime? Yes,
1: um, of course. That's my, ne- that's my next book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um, what's your response to the, uh, I think it's a dumb question. You know, because if you go to Puerto Rico, you have Latino on Latino crime. If you go to Ireland, you have Irish on Irish crime. You know, it's you, you do crime against the people that are closest to you. But what's your response to that?
1: What about Black on Black crime? Yes, I love this question. What you said is absolutely right. And I'm very serious. I'm working on a book right now called What About Black on Black Crime. And the reason why I'm excited about this book, because what about Black on Black crime was actually used as a critique mm-hmm. of police. And now it's being used against the activists, right? So, you know, people in the 40s and 50s would say police don't care about community-based violence. They only care about crime that's happened in white neighborhoods. What about crime in our communities? And so now this critique is being used against activists when actually was used against police. And so I think if we want to eradicate community-based violence, We can't rely on the institution that's violent in our communities, right? So you're going to rely on the same police department that kills about three, four, the same police that kills three or four people a day in the United States. Police kill three to four people a day. This is who you're going to respond to for our you know for our harm right so police are actually a part they perpetuate community-based violence they perpetuate black-on-black crime because they put black people in precarious situations where they put them in jail and then they take them out and then they disrupt all of the positive attributes that happen in our neighborhoods and because they want to be the ones who get jobs in order to police the violence so they're not interested and eradicating Black-on-Black crime. Because listen, if we actually eliminated Black-on-Black crime, then what would police do, right? What would be their jobs? And so it's actually in police interest to keep crime up, to keep neighborhoods unstable, right? To keep mamas crying over their babies, because that's what keeps them employed.
0: Intriguing, intriguing. Now, I know uh, we had a limited time to have a chance to chat. Uh, Do I have time for one more question?
1: Yes, please.
0: Okay, great, 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 great. So this is the the capstone question of this show. So what have you intentionally done differently from your previous generation to empower yourself to make a better life?
1: Oh, I love this question. The previous generation as a whole.
0: Take it any way you want to take it.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow. So I think the generation before mine was very excited to have, you know, the first blacks, right? The first blacks in office, the first black police chiefs, the first black this, the first black that. And I think that's really important because we know the history of oppression and racism in this country keep black people out of institutions that we think are powerful and important. I think what I've done intentionally is let go of the idea that having more black faces in high places is going to save us. And I've actually learned that from people in the prior generation. It's, it's something that I see myself as a part of that tradition. And so intentionally I have stopped fighting for more diversity, diversity in policing as a way to save us. Cause we, like you said, in Puerto Rico, that, that police department is, is Latino and they still hurting people who are Latino on that island. So it's not enough that we fight for more diversity. Right. And So intentionally, I've tried to resist diversity as something to improve policing because we know that it also doesn't work. But I love, love, love this question. And depending on the context, I have so many different answers. But mostly I feel a lot of gratitude for people in the prior generation who fought and struggled to experiment building a different kind of society. And I hope that I'm making a lot of them proud.
0: Wow. Uh, Well, I can tell you that the ancestors are smiling. They're smiling at your book. They're smiling at your efforts. So make sure you pick up Becoming Abolitionists, Police Protests, and the Pursuit of Freedom. We need to put an echo behind freedom.
1: Yes. And please, please, if you can, please get it from a black bookstore. Please don't get it from Amazon if you can. Please, please, please support black independent bookstores wherever you are, whether that's Uncle Bobby's in Philadelphia or Loyalty in Maryland. Please try to pick that book up from a black-owned bookstore.
0: I say that. I say that. I say that. Hey, you've been checking out the Get On Code show on the Our Black Empowerment channel. Today, we've been blessed. Oh, we did have a quick comment. She's making us all proud. Thank you for your work. I say that. (laughs) Oh, I didn't see that earlier. I'm sorry about that. I didn't see that earlier. And I wanna make sure that everybody knows who we're chatting with. Derricka Purnell, becoming abolitionist, police protests and the pursuit of freedom, freedom, freedom. freedom. (laughs) Had had to put the echo behind it. Uh, Any last words from the great author?
1: I mean, this has been such a rich conversation. I'm excited what people are going to think about the book. You know, like I'm just, yeah, very excited. So thank you so much for having me.
0: I'll say that. Keep doing what you're doing, sister. Once again, the ancestors, the current, the yet born are all smiling about the things that you're doing. And hey, if you're watching, make sure you pick up the book, Becoming Abolitionist police protest in the pursuit of freedom, pick it up from your melanated bookstore, your black bookstore, your empowerment center. You know, they have them. If they don't have them, they are order them for you. Yes. So you do that, hey, get on code. The encode. The code is empowerment. So get on code, teach the code, be the code. Peace. Bye. Thank you.